black women were more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. In the U.S., this is also apparent, and the statistic is 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today we're going to learn all about a new statewide initiative funded by Pelotonia and also by Pfizer and the American Cancer Society that will save lives. It's called Turning the Page on Breast Cancer in Ohio, and the goal is to educate, screen, and treat Black women who are historically at a greater risk of dying from breast cancer. The leaders of this really important program, Electra Pasquette and Heather Hampel, are my guests. In the Ohio State Comprehensive Cancer Center, Electra is the Associate Director for Population Sciences and Community Outreach and a world-class epidemiologist. And Heather is the Associate Director for Biospecimen Research and a world-class geneticist. Individually, they're nationally recognized superstars in their fields, and together they are unstoppable. Welcome, Electra and Heather. Thanks, Steve. What a nice introduction. Yeah, that was great. Well, well well-deserved. I thought before we start talking about turning the page on breast cancer, it would be helpful if you each explain briefly, which is hard to do, um, what you do and sort of the synergy of connecting your two specialties in this program. So Electra, we'll start with you. What exactly is an epidemiologist? Well, uh, a lot of people might have heard about epidemiology and epidemiologists now with the pandemic, but epidemiologists study epidemics and they find out sort of what the causes are and what's responsible for it. We, we look at the determinants of disease, who gets sick, et cetera. But an interesting twist on epidemiology is what I do. And so what I do is I take what we know about what causes a disease and my disease that I focus on is cancer. And I design and then test interventions to try to prevent people from getting cancer or reduce their risk of dying from cancer. So I take what I learned in epidemiology from study design and I meld it with health behavior, which was my minor, and i um, that's the type of work that I do. So perhaps one of the greatest examples of, of that is that epidemiologists determined that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer, and now you spread that word and create educational programs and information and screening to uh, get people to stop smoking or detect it early. Well, that's right. So that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer. That's what the traditional epidemiologist does. And then a behavioral epidemiologist would then design smoking cessation programs and test them, implement them and test them. And then the other aspect you mentioned about screening, we now have a screening tool for lung cancer, a CT scan. Epidemiologists conducted the randomized trial, found that it did save lives. And so now the behavioral epidemiologists are designing studies 
to get people to get screened for lung cancer because the screening is only between three and 5% of all eligible people. And maybe sometime, Steve, we can come back in another podcast and talk about um, our lung cancer screening initiative that we hope to get going uh, sometime this fall. Um, um, that's a, that's a date. Let's do that. So, and that's only one of the many <laughs> types of cancer and programs you have throughout the state. We could do many episodes on what you and your team do, but I just felt like lung cancer is something that is something people will quickly understand uh, and the impact you're having. So Heather, geneticists, that's really become important in the last 20 or so years as we learn more about the body. So what exactly does a geneticist do? Well, specifically, I'm a cancer genetic counselor. And so I work with people who have a lot of cancer running in their family to try and determine if there's a change in one of their genes that's being passed down from generation to generation that's predisposing them to get cancer in the first place. And if we can find families that have these high risks for cancer running in the family, we can let them know who is at risk and who's not. And for those who are, we can do intensive surveillance or prevention options to try and keep them from getting cancer in the first place. And so, you know, we have all heard about screening recommendations in the general public, for example, starting mammograms at age 40 or colonoscopies at age 45. But for a subset of the population who are at much higher risk based on their family history, that's too late. They may need to start earlier and do it more frequently or do something even um, more um, risk, more risk reducing. And so what we want to do is try and identify these individuals that are at higher risk and make sure they're getting the appropriate screening. And that, when you talk about colorectal cancer and uh, higher risk, you're talking about the Lynch syndrome mutation that we've talked about on a previous podcast, and that you led a statewide program to uh, determine all the uh, people diagnosed with colorectal cancer who had it, and then you screen their family members. Yes, exactly. That's one example of a hereditary cancer syndrome that increases the risk for getting colon, uterine, and several other cancers. Um, But even people who don't have Lynch syndrome, who have a mom, dad, brother, or sister with colon cancer, are twice as likely to get colon cancer than someone who doesn't have a close relative with colon cancer. Um, So I don't think we've talked about it yet on the podcast, but Electra and I did a study as part of the Ohio Colon Cancer Prevention Initiative, where we reached out to the relatives of our patients with colon cancer and made sure they knew they were at higher risk and gave them personalized prescriptions for when they needed to start their colonoscopies and how frequently they needed to go. Because a lot of times that gets missed. Um, You know, we catch the people with the high-risk syndromes. Um, And we know the average risk individuals, but these individuals at moderate risk sometimes can slip through the cracks. Well, that's a great example of how you two have teamed up before to save lives. So let's turn over to turning the page on breast cancer. And so Electra, as an epidemiologist, I'm guessing you and your team and others identified a problem. That's sort of the the foundation of this of this program. So what's the problem that you saw that you researched, created statistics and, and facts for? that led to turning the page on breast cancer. Right. So 
We, uh, through the data that we continually review for the state of Ohio in terms of cancer incidence and mortality, we noted that Black women uh, were more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. In the U.S., this is also apparent, and the statistic is 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. So it used to be that Black women actually had lower incidence of breast cancer. Now they're about um, equal. But now, but for a long time, um, we've seen these higher death rates in Black women. So that that was the the figure, the statistics that really started us on this path. Now, because breast cancer is so prevalent throughout all populations, 40% higher death rate translates to a lot of women. It does. It does. It does. And it shouldn't be that way. Um, You know, that is a disparity. That's the exact definition of a disparity. You have a health disparity for a specific population group, usually lower income or minority, right? Right. Or rural areas where there's um, no healthcare facilities. Well, well, mainly black women um, are are, urban. Yeah. Urban. Yes. Now, why is it that the death rate is 40, roughly 40% higher for black women? Well, um, uh, a couple of things, and and I'm going to lean from a different bunch of different uh, sources for this. Um, my colleagues in Chicago found that um, Black women, because of where they live, have undue, uh, just a whole bunch of stress. And the stress really contributes to the development of nasty cancers. I mean, real aggressive cancers. They prove that, you know, biologically. And then another group um, in uh, Chicago, the Chicago Breast Cancer Task Force actually looked into that because geographically, the higher breast cancer rates were centered where there were higher proportions of black women. And they actually found that, um, no, the women were getting mammograms, but they were getting mammograms in places that uh, didn't have as high quality mammograms, number one. Number two, the places where they were getting mammograms didn't provide any follow-up after an abnormal. So a woman didn't know she had an abnormal mammogram and needed follow-up. And of course, the women lived not where there was an academic treatment center. So all of those factors, you know, come together. If you live in a stressful neighborhood where you get really um, aggressive tumors, the mammogram quality isn't good. Nobody tells you you need follow-up. Then, of course, you're going to be more likely uh, to be diagnosed when the cancer is very advanced. And, you know, even if you can get in treatment, it's not going to help you much. Plus, those same stressful factors that caused you to have a very aggressive cancer are in play while you're going through treatment and um, it really just bode to uh, bad outcomes. The other thing that Heather and her colleagues have found is that genetic counseling and testing is just not as prominent in these populations. And I'll let Heather talk about that aspect. Wait, before before we get to that, and I I do want to talk about that, you mentioned that Women who have abnormal mammograms don't aren't told to get follow-up treatment, which sounds 
negligent to me. How is that possible that the healthcare facilities they go to don't give them that recommendation and connect them with follow-up care? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good question and an accurate statement. Um, you know, there is a law that says the mammography facility is supposed to follow up on abnormals, but not every mammogram facility in the world um, follows that um, requirement. And, um, you know, the other thing is we, we speak medical speak. And even in English, you know, not, not every person's going to understand when we, we talk medical language to people. And um, Steve, you know, I have a very big program in navigation. And that's, you know, one of the things that our patient navigators do is, uh, you know, we've proven this in many studies that patient navigators can communicate to people with an abnormal screening test, what the result means, why they need to come back, they can facilitate, uh, you know, helping the, the patient address any barriers that they have to getting in to get this follow-up test. And, and, and just so people understand, this is not a problem, loss to follow-up is not a problem that just happens in clinics that see poor patients or isn't a problem that just happens in the poor patients that any clinic sees. Um, a lot of clinics don't even have a, a standard operating procedure, an SOP, for how to follow uh, screening results and follow patients with uh, positive results. It's just, it's just not something that clinics have decided is, you know, of importance, I think, that's my opinion, or uh, put in rules, you know, who's supposed to log in or get the results of a screen test, who's supposed to follow up with somebody who has a positive, and who logs it in to make sure everybody is followed. It's not routinely done in every single clinic. Well, I guess your goal is to change that around. That's right. Uh, we, we're working on it. We're working on it in two of our studies right now. And it's very well received, extremely well received um, to help clinics develop this. Okay. Now, Heather, um, let's talk about the genetic component of uh, this program. And I know from talking to you before the BRCA genetic mutation, which increases your risk uh, for breast cancer, uh, must play a role in this somehow, but I'm sure it's more complicated than that. No, I mean, that's that's exactly the kind of thing we're looking for here, Steve. So um, we have known for some time that there are disparities in cancer genetics um, services, care and testing, um, but some studies have come out in recent years kind of showing the extent of it, and it's much uh, more extensive than we had previously thought. Um, so some nice studies from a group in Florida looked at women who were diagnosed with breast cancer under age 50, which is a common um, criteria or red flag that they might have a hereditary predisposition to, to breast cancer, and they should typically be referred to cancer genetics. And they found that only 28% of Black women who were diagnosed young like that and should have been referred were actually referred to cancer genetics. And some of the major barriers um, that they found in, in that and other studies were um, 
cost. And interestingly, cost is kind of a perceived barrier, not a real barrier. At one point, it cost over $4,000 to test for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 breast cancer genes. Um, But several things have changed, including better technology and the patent for the genes got overturned. And so um, we really routinely can do multi-gene panel tests for for dozens of cancer susceptibility genes, including BRCA1 and 2, with an out-of-pocket maximum cost these days of $250. But the really important thing is that all of the commercial labs have very generous financial hardship programs so that anyone who, for example, meets Medicaid criteria and has Medicaid also qualifies under the financial hardship program for the laboratories we use, and their genetic testing would be free. But what has happened is that doctors referred patients um, who were of lower socioeconomic status and years ago to CS in genetics, and then they could not afford the genetic test and they felt bad. So they just stopped referring. Um, and unfortunately, it's taking a little while to re-educate the providers so that they are aware that this is not a barrier anymore and that any patient who needs to see genetics or needs genetic testing uh, should and would have access to testing these days. Wow. Perception can be so important. And you're saying that the perception that this is going to cost a lot is preventing uh, doctors from recommending it and women from asking for it. Absolutely. Um, Then there's also just a general lack of awareness that this is even available. Um, It's influenced by education level, access to healthcare services, um, socioeconomic status, and acculturation. Um, But the interesting thing is if Black women are referred to cancer genetics, they are just as likely to pursue genetic testing as non-Hispanic white women. So if they get referred and get to CS, they're just as likely to be interested and want to be tested. They're just not getting referred in the first place. Um, So that is something that we want to work on. There's one other piece that kind of ties together what Electra was talking about and what I'm talking about. And that's um, the, the prevalence of a particular kind of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. Triple negative breast cancer means that the breast cancer does not have any estrogen receptors. It doesn't have progesterone receptors and it's HER2 new negative. Those are three markers that every breast cancer is tested for at the time of diagnosis. And it has, uh, it gives us information about the person's prognosis and how we're going to treat their breast cancer. It turns out that black women are twice as likely to get a triple negative breast cancer than other women. Well, there's two issues with that. Triple negative breast cancer is the most aggressive breast cancer with the poorest prognosis. So this is probably contributing a little bit to our higher death rates that we talked about. Second of all, we know that triple negative breast cancer is much more likely to be hereditary. About 81% of breast cancers in women with a BRCA1 mutation are triple negative. And so this could be also telling us that Black women are more likely to have a BRCA mutation, um, but unfortunately just haven't had access to testing in the past. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to learn about this multi-level approach and all about the um, new program. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer. 
yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Electra Pasquet and Heather Hample, and we're about to learn all about the new Turning the Page on Breast Cancer in Ohio program. So let's start with, with you, Electra, sort of walk us through the design, the goals, the, the how it works of, of this great new program. So our goal is utilizing a multi-level approach, which I'll explain in just a minute. Uh, the, this approach will provide breast cancer risk assessment, facilitate adherence to appropriate screening based on a woman's personal risk. Um, and it will include referral to genetic counseling and testing if needed. And this is for African-American women who are at greater risk for breast cancer. And also the third part is the prompt and uh, appropriate treatment to facilitate prompt and appropriate treatment. So basically what we did was we identified 12 counties in Ohio that have higher rates of breast cancer uh, mortality among uh, black women. And uh, we are implementing um, multi-level evidence-based interventions in uh, clinical sites in each of these counties. And the design we're using is a relatively new uh, weapon that we have in our uh, armamentarium of intervention designs called implementation science. So the 12 counties that we are in include um, Franklin County, Fairfield and Clark here close by, and then Butler and Hamilton in the Southwest. And then in the Northeast, we're doing a Lorraine, Cuyahoga, Lake, Summit, Stark, Mahoning and Trumbull. And these are being implemented sort of in phases was our was our plan. So I do have to say, Steve, that we had our kickoff meeting with the American Cancer Society and other folks who were funded in this initiative in February, I believe, of 2020. Oh, yeah. we know it's oh, we know it's going to yeah. happen next. So yeah, I think we, it was one of my last trips. <laughs> we have been extremely hampered in our ability to um, uh, obtain clinical partners and do any community events and get going. So COVID has really, really uh, halted us in this study. Yeah, that's a great point because screenings in general. Uh, colonoscopies, mammograms, all kinds of screenings have gone down dramatically during COVID, which is uh, a real problem and is going to lead to uh, many, many diagnoses in the later stages. So, yep. wow, that, that's a huge obstacle and hurdle you're having to overcome in everything and especially with a new program. Right. So a significant reduction in, in cervical cancer screening breast cancer screening and colon cancer screening. And we still have not seen um, complete return to normal. Some uh, geographic areas are, but most haven't. And uh, in 2020, the director of the National Cancer Institute uh, gave a presentation and said that we expect 10,000 excess, excess deaths because of the... Um, uh, stopping and putting off delaying of screening tests. And now, 
you know, we're getting really worried because, you know, if somebody got their screen in 2019, missed it in 2020, they might be saying in 2021, oh, you know, I missed it last year and I'm okay. I'll, I'll just yeah. miss it again. And that's not good because the whole purpose of screening is to find cancers when you don't even know they're there or when the doctor can't even for breast cancer feel it. So um, I'm a three-time breast cancer survivor. Uh, two of my primary cancers uh, were detected on mammograms where, you know, the, the, the cancer was not able to be detected. My first cancer was about the size of the tip of my finger and it, it was not palpable. It was only detected on mammography. So that's why I'm still here, you know, February to be 25 years. That's why I'm still here is because, you know, I got mammograms and they found that, that small cancer. And that's why uh, women need to keep getting mammograms um, even though I don't feel anything because the mammogram can find things we can't feel. And you can imagine, Steve, in high-risk patients with hereditary cancer syndromes, it's even more important that they don't skip a single screening test because their risk is so much higher. Yes. And uh, electric, knock on wood, continued good health. And you just illustrated so well the importance of screenings in general and now um, turning the page on breast cancer. So continue to walk us through the program. So um, our, our program is designed to be a multi-level implementation science project, as I mentioned. And the, mul- the levels are the community. So we start with the biggest, the community, um, the um, health clinics, systems, treatment facilities, the providers inside those systems, and the patients who go there. And um, we have... Um, interventions that we would like to implement in in each of those levels. And the way we do this is we contact clinics in each of those designated counties and find a clinic that would like to participate with us. And we also identify community organizations in those counties who would like to be our the voice of this project in the community. Um, And then we um, identify sort of the baseline rates in the clinics, baseline rates for mammography, for genetic uh, referral to genetic counseling and testing, for follow-up. And um, then we ask them, why don't, for example, why don't more of your women, you know, get mammograms or what, what facilitates you to order a mammogram for a patient? And then we get all of these, qualitative responses and we look at them and based on mainly what the barriers are, we come up with uh, evidence-based strategies to tell them that they should implement to increase genetic calcium testing, increase referral to mammogram, increase follow-up of abnormals, et cetera. And we are working in these clinics with a clinic champion that the clinics have selected and usually an implementation team that they select. And we, we go to them and we say, this is what we found when we you know, did some more formative work with all of you. And this, this is something we think could help change this. And um, they agree upon which of the strategies they would like to implement in their clinic and then how to do it. 
Um, and one of the strategies we suggest is, is an educational presentation. And Heather was in charge of the group that developed the educational presentation. And she can talk about that. That's geared to the clinic uh, staff and, and physicians. And then we just assess the, the rates of these um, uh, outcomes over time. We work with uh, the community organizations to conduct community events. And then our biggest part of this study is our website. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But we use a lot of various different strategies to direct women to the study website because that's where they can go and they can um, assess their personal risk for developing breast cancer. They can get um, uh, information on where to go to get a mammogram in their community. And uh, they can also hear testimonials from other women that look like them who have had breast cancer, um, et cetera. So maybe Heather can talk a little bit about the CME presentation now. Um, yeah, so, you know, I think the two areas that got hit the hardest by COVID were our um, community level, where we want to go out into the community health fairs, et cetera, and spread the word um, about the, the pro project and the website. And obviously, those have been um, pretty minimal um, since COVID. Uh, the other one was the provider education piece. We were going to go to the clinics and provide the pro provider education in, per in person, um, but obviously the word of the year last year was pivot. Um, so we uh, decided instead to record a um, educational module um, for the providers. And I think that actually is going to end up coming in uh, handy and working better because people can watch it any time of day. Um, we control the content. So they're getting the same information every time. And we work together. We have people on our team who are breast surgeons, who work in breast screening, who do um, oncology treatment. And so we explained, you know, kind of every one of the barriers that we talked about um, earlier in terms of um, the risk for breast cancer, the higher proportion of triple negative breast cancer, the importance of following up on abnormal mammogram results, what typically happens when somebody has an ab abnormal mammogram, what are the next steps. Um, and then there's a whole piece, of course, on um, the genetics of breast cancer and the importance of referring patients who have a strong family history. And we've got um, continuing medical education units so that the doctors who attend will get credits for watching it. Um, and what we are doing now is we'll deploy that in a clinic. Maybe we do it over lunchtime. And a couple of us from our team then are available live after the video airs for like a 15 to 20 minute Q&A at the end um, to answer questions. And so we're starting to deploy those now um, in the clinics that have partnered with us in uh, the 12 counties. Um, and we think, you know, that will help a lot with um, just general knowledge about this issue and awareness. It's great. It sounds like you're taking a two-prong approach. You're educating the physicians in the clinics and the other healthcare workers, and you're educating the women who will be at risk, which is, I take it is, is sounds like a great strategy. Let me give everyone the website. I'll say it slowly and we'll say it again at the end of the podcast. If you want to write it down, it's endbreastcancerohio.org. That's all one word, endbreastcancerohio.org. So I take it that because of these other statewide programs, many, many that you've both been involved in, 
you're already known at these clinics and health centers around the state, and they're receptive and know that you're there to help. Is that is that the case? And is that what helps make this possible, particularly during COVID? I, I would say, Steve, this is slightly different than the other three statewide projects because those statewide projects started with an individual who had cancer. So we were really primarily in oncology clinics. We're trying in this study to do something very different, which is to try and keep women from getting breast cancer in the first place. So we're starting more in primary care type clinics. Now, luckily, a lot of Electra's other research is in federally qualified health centers and the types of clinics that we wanted to do this project in. Um, But it wasn't the same clinics that our other Pelotonia-funded statewide initiatives have been in. Luckily, it was um, some of the clinics that Electra's worked in historically on increasing um, screening rates and uh, HPV vaccination rates and these types of things. So she did have a lot of contacts in the clinics, but it's a a little bit of a different approach than our other three Pelotonia-funded statewide initiatives. But the problem was, you know, excuse me, sorry, Steve, was that, you know, even if a clinic had decided they wanted to participate, the problem was COVID. And so they had to say, sorry. And, you know, and we, you know, we had to, to um, do pauses, you know, still doing pauses with several clinics now because of the new wave. Um, And, and so, you know, but that's the most important thing when you're doing community-based work is that, you have to listen. You have to listen to your community and um, go with the flow. Um, and, you know, you're, you can't impose your will upon them. You have to go with how the, their, their rate and, and how they're doing now. And, and you know, now with the, this new wave with the Delta variant, we are probably doing going to start pauses again in our other big studies, you know, our colon initiative and my big study in four Appalachian areas, um, four states, four Appalachian areas and four states, um, because the clinics are getting bombarded with uh, COVID again. And and we did this last year. We had a pause of about three to four months. And I think we're going to have to do that again. But we have to do that. We, We have to do that. We have to listen to what our communities are telling us. Well, as you're saying that, I can, I, I'm just curious. We've talked before. You're so much about prevention of disease. So this, I don't know whatever word I'll use, the reluctance of some people to get the vaccine, which could, how frustrating is that for you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And yes, it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating as an epidemiologist. It's very frustrating because I had COVID in November. I was hospitalized for five days. So I know um, what it's like. It's not a joke. And, um, you know, I'm vaccinated. My family is vaccinated. And uh, it's very hard for me to see people resisting uh, vaccination. Um, Very hard. It's a very similar thing we saw when we got the HPV vaccine. For years, people have been wanting a vaccine against cancer. And we have it. And they should be lining up down the street to get a vaccine that can prevent up to six cancers. And they're not. It's the same with COVID. And people want to go back to work. They want everything back to normal. Well, folks, if you want to get back to normal, get your vaccine, wear your mask. Simple things. I'm sorry. You have to do that. But it's a very simple thing. 
that will get us back to normal. Yeah. And I, I just want to stress, I, I, you know, it's come up in this podcast before, but people are going to die because of the prolonging of this pandemic and not just from COVID. It's the people who are not getting their screening on time and are going to get diagnosed with cancer later. It's the person who has a heart attack today and can't be seen in the ER because they're full of COVID patients. I, I, I think the effects are going to be staggering and people only think about the COVID effects, which are bad enough, but right. um, it's, right. it's, it's affecting every sort of aspect of, of medicine and health. Right. And people worried about the economy, get vaccinated, wear your mask, we'll get back. But, you know, I don't like wearing a mask. I didn't like getting vaccinated. My arm hurt forever. I was not, you know, I had the, the side effects. But if we want to get back to where we were, if we want our economy back, there's a few things we have to do. Wow. So, I can hear the passion in both of you, and I I don't even have to ask you what drives you to do what you do. So despite these obstacles, COVID and initiating a new program and educating people about something they didn't know about and might be a little scared of, what's the progress so far on um, this new program? That's a great question. And um, one of the things I can tell you that was less affected by COVID was our patient level outreach. So this website that Elector talked about, we were able to design um, and we had always intended to uh, deploy that by targeted Facebook ads. Um, and probably people have been on social media a little bit more in the last year and a yeah. half because there's not much else we can do. Um, and so the website has been deployed um, and we've had over 5,000 individuals visit the website. Um, uh, we are trying to increase the number of individuals who visit the website who actually get a risk assessment um, by making that the landing page and kind of tweaking things a little bit, um, because ultimately what we want them to do um, is to um, complete a seven-question risk assessment questionnaire, very simple yes or no questions um, that will determine if they're at higher risk and need to see genetics or at average risk. And then we'll give them uh, their mammogram recommendation based on their risk level. Um, so so we're, this was one piece of the project that was less delayed by COVID and in fact, in some ways may have been helped a little bit by COVID. So you're getting the word out. And then the next step is once women fill out this questionnaire and have a higher risk, you need to get them in for their screenings, for their mammograms, for their genetic tests. And that's what you're, that's the next big step. So everyone get your vaccine and get your screenings. That's right. And the, the website actually does give them uh, a, a really personalized risk assessment. It gives them contacts in their county for cancer genetic services, for mammogram services, um, all of the things that you might need um, based on your risk level. Uh, so, and, and then again, an important key of all of Electra's research is the option for uh, help. If you need help getting those services, we have patient navigators that are available to help um, pe get people, overcome any barriers that people might have to getting um, what they need. Yeah, the barriers of the cost and finding a place to do it, you can help people overcome that. That's right. Another um, silver lining of COVID was that um, I have not actually seen a patient in person um, since March of 2020. We switched all of our cancer genetic services to televideo, um, which really eliminates a lot of barriers in terms of uh, transportation, 
parking, um, a lot of fear of just coming to OSU campus because it's a little scary if you're from a small town. Um, and so we can really provide cancer genetic services now at somebody's home via televideo. Um, and, you know, of course, not everybody has access to good Wi-Fi or devices. And so we can also do telephone only. Um, I do prefer the video because I feel it's like it's much more like a one-on-one -on -one experience in clinic where you can see each other. You can kind of read somebody's face. If they're not quite understanding you, you can you, you can tell and you can uh, re-explain it another way until, until it makes sense. And so, um, but, you know, making sure we think this is going to help with access in all 12 of the counties. Um, for at least the cancer genetics component. Well, let me give the website again, endbreastcancerohio.org, all one word, .org. And so women out there listening, check it out. I thought it might be interesting. As I said before, you really are both leaders in your field. And so I'm going to ask each of you to tell me a little bit about why the other is so good at what they do. So Electra, what makes Heather so good at what she does? Well, Heather um, is a very caring and passionate person about what she does. And, uh, you know, she could just do her genetics job, which is huge. And, and, and her caring comes across there because she doesn't just care about the person comes in the office. She cares about the whole family. And she, you know, is spurred an initiative that where they'll go to family reunions and if needed, educate and test, you know, a whole family. So she's very invested and believe really believes in, in what she does. And then, then she has this whole other side of her that does all these research projects that thinks big in terms of, you know, our statewide initiatives in order to take what she's been doing in the clinic and take it out uh, to everybody. And she's a really nice person, a fun person, and a great friend. Wow. I think that sums up Heather great. <laughs> so Heather, your turn. What makes Electra so special? So um, anyone who's ever met Electra knows she is a force of nature. <laughs> and um, she juggles a thousand balls at one time with unbelievable grace and skill. Um, and I think what she has taught me and where we're such a good match is, you know, I, I did start in just my little world of cancer genetics. And I always describe to people as this passive approach where we sit in clinic and hope somebody takes a family history and hope somebody refers them. But I've learned from Electra how much bigger of a difference you can make if you address a lot of these issues as public health problems, which is what they are. Um, and so Electra is so good at that. And that's where these epidemiology skills come in. You know, if you, if you, um, you know, test one person and find out they have a hereditary cancer syndrome, you've helped one person. But if you do a Facebook ad to thousands of black women in 12 counties with high rates of breast cancer death and do risk assessment for all of them and drive them into cancer genetics, if they are high risk, you're going to save a lot more lives. And so, so Electra is a big picture thinker um, and she knows how to get things done. Um, you know, there, there are people who talk a lot and don't get things done. <laughs> There's people who talk a lot and do get things done with action. And so um, she's actually um, been a mentor to me and many other people. Um, and uh, I think you know, it, it's, it, it, when you work in public health, you, you don't get to hear firsthand about the lives you've saved, but she's saved 
untold numbers of lives through the various studies she's done over the years. And some people who won't even know it, you know, people who got their HPV vaccine because of her work and are not going to die of a cervical cancer. It's, it's pretty well, Thank you, Heather. <laughs> You're so sweet. <laughs> so I think we just got a, a little glimpse into why you two are both so amazing <laughs> individually and together even more so. So thank you both for what you're doing. And let me one more time, give out the website endbreastcancerohio.org. So log on to that and learn more and get involved if this could impact you. So thank you both for what you do and for, for sharing all this information and passion about saving lives in Ohio and beyond. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Steve. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.